Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Good morning, guys. Good to see your smiling faces this morning. I was just making sure everybody's smiling. If you would, please grab your Bibles here and turn to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 today. And as you do that, let me review from last Sunday. The Holy Spirit of Almighty God, He taught us the demands of discipleship. And he, he taught us those demands from the Lord Jesus himself. Last week was a weighty lesson. It was a solemn sermon. We learned the, the seriousness of, of what it looks like to mislead someone who's new or a, a weak believer away from the truth. We learned the seriousness of, of not dealing with and repenting from ongoing sin in our own lives. The Lord Jesus, he taught us the lesson of radical spiritual surgery, the cutting off, the cutting out, the stopping of sin that we've always run to, to cope with life. We are not to engage in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. We are called unto holiness. We are to be a living sacrifice for the Lord Jesus. And one of the key points from last week was this. That you become what you watch. You become what you watch. You become what you participate in. The Word of God says this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, that we are to fix our eyes on what is true. Not on lies, but truth. What is honorable, not dishonorable. What is right, not wrong, but pure, not impure. Lovely, admirable that we are to think about these things that are, are excellent and, and worthy of praise. And that was all from last week. Today is Palm Sunday, and next week is Easter or Resurrection Sunday. So what we're doing today and for next Sunday is we're readjusting our verse-by-verse preaching here of the Gospel of Mark. We're gonna, we just finished up chapter 9, usually we'd roll right into chapter 10, um, But since today is Palm Sunday, we're skipping chapter 10, looking at at chapter 11. And before we dive in, let me give you kind of a brief overview of what happens in chapter 10, because it does set us up for today's narrative. So in chapter 10, and we'll get back to this, by the way, we'll go through chapter 10 after Resurrection Sunday. In chapter 10, Jesus addresses six things. Number one, questions on divorce. Number two, he He teaches the disciples the importance of blessing children, why he does that. He has a conversation with a rich young ruler. He tells the disciples about his death and his resurrection for the third time. He deals with the disciples' pride once again. They're not not dealing with that, struggling with that sin. And then he also heals a blind man, and that's important for today. Um, 
So today, chapter 11, for you type A personalities that likes to know what's going on, uh, Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be looking somewhere in between Mark chapter 15 and 16. So that's where we're headed, but today is Palm Sunday. So what is Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday is simply the, the Sunday before Easter. The Sunday before Easter, it introduces what's known as Holy Week. And this week has been celebrated throughout all of Christendom, regardless of denomination. Doesn't matter um, what flavor of faith that you hold to. This is Holy Week. Uh, it's also called Passion Week, the Passion of the Christ. And Holy Week or Passion Week is named because of the passion in which Jesus willingly went to the cross to pay for our sins for those, who, those of us who believe in the gospel. Now, as we begin reading today's scripture, I want you to notice several things, two things in particular. Number one, how much time is spent on the preparation of walking into Jerusalem? The first seven verses of this text, they show us that Jesus has a divine authority over the smallest of details. I mean, this is truly incredible. Um, seven out of 11 verses are about a donkey. No kidding. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Um, really, what I want you to see there in the first seven verses is how when Jesus spoke and by speaking, what he does is he sets a, a series of events into, mo into motion. He has control and he's sovereign over the smallest of details. And then I, secondly, I want you to notice here that Jesus enters Jerusalem on his own terms. No one forces him to do this. So how, how do these terms, how, what, what, how do these things apply in our own lives? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. So when they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And he told them, go into the village ahead of you. And as soon as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and they found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered them, just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their clothes out on the road, and, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed, they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple, and after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. These are the very words from God for us this morning. Please pray with me. So, Father in heaven, it is Palm Sunday. We just want to thank you and praise you for allowing us to gather and sing praises to your son's name. And today we get to see how he prepared for 
next, for next Sunday. Lord, teach us the details of your sovereignty today. Show us how you are in every single minute detail of our own lives. And at the same time, as you do that, show us the deep things of your word today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Have a seat, guys. Thank you. So let's take a deeper look here at verse 1. So when they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. So this narrative, it starts with the names of two villages and a mountain. Bethphage, it means the house of unripe figs. Um, it was near Jerusalem. We don't really know where, where it was. Bethany, on the other hand, was located on the eastern side of the, of the Mount of Olives. Um, Bethany means house of dates. So we have the house of figs and the house of dates. Bethany was only about two miles from Jerusalem. This is probably where Jesus and his disciples stayed during this week. Bethany is where Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, lived. And it's important to note here that today's story starts on a Monday. And the reason that's important is in the Old Testament, the Passover lambs, they were selected on a very specific day. They were selected on the 10th day of the first month, and then those lambs were then sacrificed on the 14th day. Just so happens that when you look at a Jewish calendar, the 10th day of the first month fell on a Monday. Here's the significance to that. When Jesus enters Jerusalem on that Monday, Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy, right? He fulfills the role of the Father's chosen lamb in the same way and on the same day as the Jewish people are choosing their own lambs. John chapter 1, verse 29, John, John the baptizer, he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Look, that right there, that's the Lamb of God. And that man is going to take away the sin of the world. So what we're going to find out next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, is that the Lord Jesus was the Father's chosen Lamb, who was indeed killed on a Friday, which is the 14th day of the month. I want you to think about this. The Lord Jesus, he was killed outside Jerusalem, right? He was, he was killed on, in, on Calvary. But he was killed with thousands upon thousands of other lambs on this particular Passover day. But yet none of those other lambs, they could ever satisfy the wrath of God like Jesus did. And we know that because the Word of God says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. See, it's only the Father's Lamb that does that, and that Lamb's name is Jesus. In verse 1, we're given the details here of three specific places. Once again, Bethany, Bethphage, and the Mount of Olives. So these details, these are important, so stay with me here. Jesus' journey into Jerusalem begins on that Monday. It begins at Bethany, a tiny village at the very top of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a mountain range east of Jerusalem where the Garden of Gethsemane is. 
The Mount of Olives sits above the city and has a, a, just a beautiful view of the city, beautiful view of the temple. There's a lot of significance to that. And it goes back to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. God gave Ezekiel a vision. And at that time, Jerusalem is being destroyed by Babylon because of their rebellion against God. Well, in that vision, Ezekiel saw the glory of God rise up from the temple and leave. So most likely, Ezekiel saw um, the physical presence of, of God in, in, in a cloud, very similar to that of the Exodus, the Shekinah glory. So God's glory leaves the temple, and it rises 300 feet, and then it rests on the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel saw that. Why is this so important? Well, stay with me. We're going to find out in verse 11. Back to verse 2. Jesus told them, so he tells uh, two disciples here, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Now, I don't know about you, but this verse is just weird. Is Jesus telling his disciples to go steal a donkey? No. See, Jesus was consciously and he was explicitly fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, once again, this time from the book of Zechariah. So Jesus sends two disciples, most, most likely to Bethphage, because that's the other village mentioned, to get a colt. A colt is just a young donkey. So I want you to notice how precise and exact this prophecy is from Zechariah to verse 2, the words of Jesus. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is insane. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you, and he is righteous and victorious. He is humble, and he's riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Riding a donkey, contrary to what we think today, it was the sign of a king. Jesus, by doing so, Jesus identified with the royal line of David here. The donkey was a royal animal in, in uh, David's day. And basically after David, though, kings switched from donkeys to horses, and eventually the, the donkey was unworthy of a king. But all that to say this, Jesus' choice of a donkey, it not only told the whole world who Jesus was, that he was the promised king, but it also proclaimed what he was like. He's humble and he's gracious. Jesus mentions here that, that no one has ever sat on this donkey. And the reason for that is because these colts are, are used for sacred purposes. And then something else is, is pretty significant here. Horses and donkeys had to be broken in to ride them, right? Well, in Jewish culture, no one was allowed to ride the king's horse or the king's donkey. So they had to break them in. The cult, meaning the cult was specifically prepared for Jesus. History shows us that the most, most of the kings in the ancient world, like Alexander the Great, he's obviously a very humble man, he rode in on a magnificent horse, right? A beautiful horse. King Solomon, he, um, he rode into Jerusalem one time with 20,000 horses, these horses were not just 
any old horse. These were the, the finest horses in the kingdom. They were fit, and they were beautiful, and they were trained. Josephus, he's a, a Jewish historian, he says this, the, the riders on these horses, they were also young men that were of perfect age. They were also fit, and these men were trained as well. They were taller than most men, and they had long heads of hair that hung down. Some guys have all the luck, I guess. <laughs> Not only that, their hair was sprinkled with gold dust so that the reflection of the sun would sparkle in their hair. So just picture Fabio. King Solomon himself, he dressed in a white garment. He rode in his chariot in the middle of all these men. These men, they wore armor. They were armed with bows and arrows. Others were dressed in purple. So we've got lots of pomp and circumstance here, right? This is quite the show. This is amazing. That's how Solomon entered Jerusalem. But not the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews comes riding on a donkey, and he fulfills prophecy from 500 years earlier from Zechariah. That is insane. Verse 2, he says, Jesus says, as soon as you enter it. Look at the detail here. This little detail, Jesus reassures the disciples, they're not going to be looking for this cult all day. This is not a long search. Jesus guarantees that. Why does he do that? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is man wrapped up in skin and bones. He, he not only foresaw the scene, but he ordained it to happen. Jesus spoke this thing into existence. Verse 3, Jesus says, If anyone says to you, why are you guys doing this? You need to say, say this, the Lord needs it but he will send it back to you right away. So in other words, the guys, they're, they're saying, what right do you have to take that donkey? Jesus answers this question immediately. He says, the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. So the first six verses of this story, it's amazing. It demonstrates Jesus's precise foreknowledge, his sovereignty over these events. Now, even this question, contains subtle details of how Jesus is God here. And here's what I mean. Throughout world history, the, the kings in ancient times, they had the prerogative to seize animals. And that's what King Jesus is doing here. This very verse, it, it hints that Jesus is a king. So in, in other words, Jesus is saying, you tell them that the sovereign one, you tell them that the king of the Jews requires this donkey. So let's see how this plays out. Verse 4, so they went out, they found a colt outside the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? The disciples answered them, just as Jesus had said. So they let him go. The disciples brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. So it happened exactly the way Jesus said it was going to happen. The disciples here, they make a temporary saddle for Jesus. Why do they do this? Well, Jesus is now letting the disciples know 
purposely going public. Jesus has never done this before. All the crowds have come to him. So as we read through the Gospels, what we, we have seen that Jesus, he most of the time leaves the crowds. He withdraws from the crowds, but not today. Today is completely different. Today is a special, special day. Verse 8. So he's riding on the donkey. Many people spread their clothes out on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. So the crowd's response here is spontaneous. Why are, why are people spreading branches and, and placing their clothes on the road? You put your clothes on the road, the donkey is going to walk over your clothes. Why are they doing that? Well, it's like laying out the red carpet for a king. People are, are laying their clothes on the ground. It symbolizes submission to Jesus. The branches symbolize Jewish victory. So by waving the branches, these, these people are saluting Jesus. They are hailing Jesus as the Davidic king, the Messiah. Notice in verse 8, it says many people. Now, we, we don't know how many people are in this crowd, but we can take an educated guess from all the other previous crowds that this crowd was enormous. And then not only that, but 2 million Jews made this trip to Jerusalem each year to Passover. And then in addition to all of that, Jesus also healed in Mark chapter 10. He heals a, a blind beggar. We notice in the Gospel of Luke, there's a conversion of a, a, a famous, if we want to say famous, tax collector. Uh, maybe notorious is better. A notorious tax collector named Zacchaeus. So um, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So all of these things are feeding this crowd, and, and they are just really excited as they're walking to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So it's estimated that this, this crowd could, it may have been, up to 100,000 people walking into Jerusalem with Jesus. Verse 9, those who went ahead and those who followed, they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Hosanna, it literally means save, or God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. And that particular psalm was used as part of this, the ceremony for Passover. Verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So Hosanna, once again, well, it, it points to Jesus. He's going to save his people, but he's also a political messiah. And make no, doubt, make no doubt about it, Jesus is a political messiah. We're not really seeing that through the Gospels, but the people think he's there to defeat Rome. He's not there to defeat Rome. Satan will be defeated Sin will be defeated. Death will be defeated. So the crowds, notice here, the crowds, they're not celebrating salvation. They're not pleading salvation from their sin. They were, they're begging for blessing, prosperity, just like us. But tragically, this same crowd who on Monday, who is gladly singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you turn around on Friday and the same people in the same crowd, they are screaming in anger, 
crucify him, crucify him. See, the crowd was looking for a Messiah to free them from Roman oppression. Jesus, however, he came not only as the Davidic messianic king, but also as the son of man. And as the son of man, Jesus, he, he does things that David never dared to do, like forgive sin. So verse 11, Jesus went into Jerusalem and to the temple, and after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So I don't know about you, but verse 11 is extremely disappointing. I mean, this, this appears to be the moment for Jesus to be crowned king. I mean, he just spent hours riding this donkey with tens of thousands of people celebrating. He gets into Jerusalem, and then he finally gets to the temple, and pff, nothing. I mean, that's it? I mean, did the, what happened to the crowd? Did they just vanish? So this brings us to, to key point number one today. Don't mistake enthusiasm or emotion for your faith. Don't mistake enthusiasm or emotion for your faith. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm all about people getting very excited for Jesus. I'm all about that. But don't mistake one for the other. So what's really going on in verse 11? Well, it seems that when Jesus gets to the temple... He walks around for a bit, and then he just leaves. That's odd. And in many translations, they call this the triumphant entry. So I've titled this message with a question mark, the triumphant entry. I mean, who did Jesus triumph over? Where's the big conquest? Where's Jesus claiming victory over? So Mark, our, our gospel writer here, he, he led us to have these great expectations of Jesus being crowned king, and yet it just seems like it falls flat. Well, Jesus' arrival at the temple, it sets the stage for the rest of the week. So the true significance of what Jesus did in verse 11 can only be seen through the Old Testament, through the lens of the Old Testament. So let me show you Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant that you delight in, see, he is coming. So Jesus, what he's doing, he's, he's, not, he's not just taking a, a tour of the temple. He's fulfilling prophecy here. He's not acting like a tourist. He's actually inspecting the temple. He inspects every aspect of the temple. He's taking a survey of how the temple is being used. So you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, we need to remember that where Jesus was back in verse 1, Jesus starts this day on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sets his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, knowing that he's going to suffer and die there. But see, Jerusalem is not his ultimate destination. His destination is the temple. And when Jesus went into, into the temple... Um, or he goes into Jerusalem and then into the temple, he looks around and he sees where the sacrifices are going to be offered for Passover. Now, the temple that he's standing in replaced 
the tabernacle of the Old Testament. So stay with me here. John's gospel tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? That phrase there, dwelt among us, it literally means he tabernacled with us. So this is key point number two. What Jesus is doing on this day is he is fulfilling everything that the tabernacle pointed to. Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. And he's fulfilling everything that the tabernacle and that the temple point to. See, the tabernacle, the temple, it was a shadow of things to come. So Jesus literally pitched his tent among us. So when just, a, just as God's Shekinah glory tabernacled with the people of the Old Testament, we now have the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He is tabernacling. He's walking on the earth. So the temple, the tabernacle here is an Old Testament picture of Jesus and not only that, but Jesus is not just the temple or the tabernacle. He's also the, all the elements inside the tabernacle. So let me give you some examples here. The Jews in the Old Testament, when they entered the tabernacle through the door, it always faced east. Jesus comes and he says, I am the door. I'm that door. So in other words, Jesus is the door of salvation in the Old Testament. In the tabernacle, the Jews used a wash basin. It was called a laver. And the priests would wash their hands. They would wash their feet in, in this, this laver on a, a daily basis. They, they could not go into the holy place without washing themselves. Jesus comes along and is trying to wash the disciples' feet. He gets to Peter. What's Peter say? Oh, you can't do that. And Jesus says this, he says, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you have no part of me. In other words, Jesus is the laver of the Old Testament. In the tabernacle, there was a candlestick with seven branches. It was made of pure gold. It burned olive oil night and day. It was the only source of light in the tabernacle. And without this light, they, they couldn't see God in his holy place. Jesus comes along and he says, I am the light. So in other words, Jesus is the lamp of the Old Testament. In the tabernacle, there was a, a table that had 12 loaves of bread. It was called showbread. These 12 loaves represented Israel. Uh, this table was a place of communion. It was a place of fellowship with God and his people. And Jesus comes along and says, I am the bread of life. So in other words, Jesus is the showbread in the Old Testament. In the tabernacle, there was a very thick curtain. It was a veil. It separated the place, the holy place from the, the holy of holies. No priest could enter this, uh, the holy of holies except going through the veil. And if a high priest passed through the veil without being sacrificially clean, God would strike him dead. Very serious business. Along comes Jesus, and the Word of God says this, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, we are now completely free to enter the most holy place without fear because of the blood of Jesus' death. We can enter through a new and a living way that Jesus opened up for us. It leads through the curtain 
It's Christ's body. Wow. In other words, Jesus is the curtain. He is the veil of the Old Testament. There was a trunk-like box in the tabernacle. It was the centerpiece of the Holy of Holies. It was called the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Inside that Ark were the Ten Commandments, a pot of manna, and Aaron's rod. On top of that Ark was a lid. It was called the Mercy Seat. And above that Mercy Seat were angels called cherubim. They had wings that they stretched out over the Ark. One time a year, on the Day of Atonement, The blood of a goat was placed on the mercy seat to cover people's sins. Jesus comes along, and the Word of God says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. So God the Father presented Him, that's Jesus, God the Son, as the mercy seat by His blood. Because in His restraint, God the Father passed over the sins previously committed. So in other words... Jesus is the mercy seat of the Old Testament. The priest, they were mediators between God and man, and and the high priest was the head priest. Jesus comes along, and the word of God says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, he passed from heaven to earth, Jesus, the Son of God, he is named Let us hold fast to our confession, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way, as we are, and yet he he doesn't have sin. He's without sin. So therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So in other words, Jesus is the new high priest priest. Last example. In the Old Testament, the priest would take a perfect lamb and they would slaughter it for the people's sins. The priest would would place their hands on the lamb and that would symbolize the transfer of our sins to, to the lamb. But this was not forgiveness of sins. This was a covering of sins. This was a band-aid. This was temporary. Jesus comes along and the word of God says this, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands day after day after day after day, year after year after year, decade after decade, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time after time. Can never take away sin. But this man, this Jesus, after one sacrifice, forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. All of that to say is that Jesus is the sacrifice, and he is now standing in his temple in the sanctuary. Jesus is the tabernacle, the temple, and everything inside the temple points to him. So this is why Jesus said, look guys, you destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it up. He wasn't talking about the, the brick and mortar. He's speaking of himself. He's talking about his own resurrection. So back to verse 11. So Jesus went to Jerusalem and into the temple, and after looking around at everything, since it's already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
So here's the irony to this seemingly anticlimactic ending for this narrative for Palm Sunday. And this takes us all the way back to verse 1. The prophet Ezekiel, right? He saw God's glory leave the temple. I mean, how scary is that? He saw God's glory leave. Move towards the, the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is where Jesus started this journey. And when Jesus entered the temple on that Monday evening, the glory of God returned. King of glory is back in his temple, and yet no one even knew it. Unbelievable. So how does this how does this narrative, how does this story apply to our lives today? Well, I think that just as, as God tabernacled with his people in the Old Testament, just as Jesus dwelt with his people in the first century, God continues to dwell with us today. He does it in a different way, though. He does it through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And God continues to speak to his people through his word and through his spirit. So the question becomes, are you one of his people? I mean, next week we're going to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. This is the most significant event of all time. I mean, think about this. Jesus Christ, a man walks out of his own grave. I mean, think about that. Think about if you saw someone die, you saw that person buried, and then three days later, you saw him in flesh and bone again. What's that tell you? Death doesn't have any power over that person. And the resurrection of Jesus, it proves that Jesus is who he said he was. It also proves that God the Father accepted his sacrifice for our sin. Because of Jesus' suffering and his death and his resurrection, dear friends, your sin debt can be paid in full. So how exactly is that paid? How can you be made right with God today? It's the most famous Bible verse in all of Scripture. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, see, that's our part. We believe in him. It's not based on good deeds. We can't make the father smile. We believe, and when we believe, we're not going to die. We're going to have eternal life. For God did not send his, his son to condemn the world. He's not judging you. Judgment comes the second time around. This time, it's in order that he will save you. So next Sunday, we're going to learn how the death of Jesus specifically saves you. So if you're visiting with us today, I pray that you come back next Sunday to hear God's, God's word wrapped up, this thing called the resurrection. Um, it's all wrapped up in grace and truth. For those of you who call River home, I just want to encourage you to grab a couple of those invitation cards here and uh, give them out this week. Please pray with me.
So, Father in heaven, we want to thank you and praise you. You are so good. We want to thank you and praise you for being a God of details, a God of love, that you are, you are a good father, and you have sent your son to do something that we can't even think about doing. We can't stand in your holy presence, and yet you decided to make a way for us. So, Lord, thank you for showing us how Jesus prepared for next Sunday. And, and Holy Spirit, I pray that you now prepare us this week for next Sunday as well. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.